This is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. I've been thinking a lot about why I make photographs. It's, it's a question I pose to myself, especially during those periods when I'm feeling stuck or stagnant. It's not about my not making pictures, or even about not making enough photographs, but instead why it's so important for me to do what I do. Because when I'm out there, endlessly repeating myself and feeling frustrated as a result, the answer to the question of why is an important one for me to answer. And sometimes the answer to that question arrives not when I'm making photographs, but when I have the chance to sit down with another creative, a photographer, a writer, or a painter, and we have the opportunity to not only discuss what we do, but why we do it. Such conversations have been incredibly enlightening for me and have had a big impact on my photography, especially in this year of 2019. And today's conversation with Jens Brouwer is just one such conversation. Though some of you may know Jens from his street photography work or as host of the Fuji Love podcast, what I enjoy most about him is his thoughtful approach to being creative. He is a photographer who sees photography not merely as a way to feed one's ego with likes and thumbs up, but as the means to express something about himself and the people he comes into contact with because of his camera. I like the fact that this has to do with interest in people and uh, interest in life. And the interesting thing is you can do it anywhere you are. Like it really requires little kind of a material or little financial effort. As long as you have the time and you have the interest, you can, you can do it. I mean, and, and I'm fascinated in people, no matter if I go to uh, Bucharest or if I go to Amsterdam or to Istanbul, you'll figure that people are all very similar no matter where you go. And then it's just very fascinating to go deeper. I especially enjoy staying in a place for a week or two to get to know it even better. Like I'm always try, almost trying to become kind of a, a local and to get a knowledge by walking around with my camera. So for me, it was very accessible. I love the street. I love being out. And I have a natural interest. I'm very curious. I tend to go to places where you should be maybe a bit careful or sometimes not go. So this kind of drives me. I want to go deeper and deeper into different cultures and understand them. It is really easy today to become a competent photographer. You can get to the point with today's cameras and software so that you can produce work that will gain you the approval of others on Instagram, Facebook, or 500px. But that's also a trap. Because that pursuit of instant gratification can stifle your willingness to embrace the discomfort and the challenge of change. Today, I believe, um, also in the most respectful way possible, people often replicate themselves. Especially if we like kind of uh, look over to social media, Instagram and these kind of things. There's a method to getting liked. Uh, just that the method to getting liked is, is there's no, no, no friction. There is nothing new. You just basically repeat to get love. And I think that when you like trying to create something new, new, you cannot 
avoid going into the unknown and, and quote, quote, the dark. And this is where all those doubts, the reflections, the insecurity happens. And that's where most of, for me personally, the good things come from. I've always became accustomed to this kind of roller coaster. So I'm, I, I know it's going down, you know, maybe having a photographer's block or just a bad month or something like this. But I've learned that by going down, I have to take that momentum to swing up the other way. And the more I embrace it, the more it's going to swing me up the other way. We'll talk to Jens about why he became a photographer and how he nurtures his continuing evolution behind the camera. Welcome to the Candid Frame. Well, Jens, welcome to the Candid Frame. It's a real pleasure uh, to have you. So glad to be here. Thank you very much for having me, Mario Next, I uh, watched that uh, conversation that uh, you had with Olaf Staba earlier this year, or was it late last year? I think it was April this year, if I remember okay. right. Okay, yeah. And it was a conversation I was I enjoyed, and my only lament was the fact that I couldn't sit down there and join you guys. So. Well, We'll have you around next time we do that. <laughs> but as much as I want to talk to you about you know the philosophy of what you do and what we do uh, in, in common, I'm really kind of interested in uh, a story whose whose idea I've I've really touched on with a lot of photographers over the many years. But uh, I think especially the case this year is the idea of people who are already in sort of a career path discovered that they were very frustrated with the life that was that they were in experiencing at that point and looking for something else, finding it, and then making the transition. So I'd like to start there. Why don't you tell us about where where, where were you at professionally in your life and about the frustration and that you were experiencing at that at that job and, and how you changed things? Well, what's well, a bit of a longer story. I'm trying to make it short. It's There's two parts to this. Between 20 and 30, I had no corporate ambition at all. And from uh, 30 to 40, I actually went to work with a tie. I had a really good income. I made a little bit of a career in a huge uh, sports foundation taking care of soccer in Europe. And at some point, I figured that this is not going to satisfy me for the rest of my life. I quit my job. A lot of people told me um, I'm borderline crazy to do that because how can you like let this kind of salary go. But I've always been like this. I do things because they're either challenging, because they're creative, because they make me happy. And there came a, came a point where I knew that this was not going to happen for me for the rest of my life. So I built my photography passion in parallel with my existing job. And then at some point, there were a few things happening within that company where I realized that morally, I wasn't happy. And I just very spontaneously walked up to my former boss and told him I wasn't happy, I would like to leave. And, and, and gratefully, photography came into my life in parallel. So I kind of fell back to that because I always fall back to creative things when I, when I changed my life. And I didn't do that for the first time. Yeah, so it wasn't sort of a blind leap because some people, you know, they get fired and all of a sudden they have to sort of suddenly redefine their lives. You were sort of slowly creating the path by which you could take advantage of later. How, how long was that time period? About two. I remember 2012. One of the reasons I did that job was because they sent me to Ukraine for the European Football Championship. And that was one of those jobs where I thought... Uh, 
this is going to be an adventure. I'm, I'm in. Like, you know, sent me there for a year. And I started taking casually pictures, came back, showed it to people, and I got great feedback. So I started investigating what works and what doesn't work in my photography. And then there were another two or three years where in parallel to my job, I started taking photography more and more serious and took the time for it. The advantage was we were traveling a lot, of course, paid by the company. And usually at uh, six, seven o'clock in the evening, my colleagues used to go to different bars and have a blast. And I usually just took my camera and wherever we were, I started roaming the streets until uh, one or two a.m. and came back. And I did that day after day for about three years while I was still working. So that's how this built over time. So you took you know, immediately took to the streets. That was an initial attraction in terms of subject matter? Yeah, that's my, my natural attraction. When I was younger, I used to be a, a lot in urban and in hip-hop culture. Uh, myself... Uh, putting color into urban environments. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, okay. so a little bit in, in the conflict with the law at some point. So, I mean, the philosophy is the same. Uh, you either have a backpack uh, full of aerosol cans or you have a, a bag with a camera. And then you start walking the streets, you roam, you look for opportunities. So the mindset was kind of immediately there, just the tool was a different one. Mm. And, and you're less prone to get the attention of the law sometimes. It depends. I mean, <laughs> I'm sure you have a story or two to get into the conflict with the law while you were out on the street. So it, it happens as well, but it's sure less less dangerous than, than the other activity. So what was the attraction to you? of photographing on the streets because yes there's a great interest in street photography especially over the last 10 years or so but personally what drew you to that subject matter as opposed to something else i like the fact that this has to do with interest in people and uh, interest in life and the interesting thing is you can do it anywhere you are like it really requires little kind of a material or little financial effort, as long as you have the time and you have the interest, you can you can do it. I mean, and, and I'm fascinated in people, no matter if I go to uh, Bucharest or if I go to Amsterdam or to Istanbul, you'll figure that people are all very similar no matter where you go. And then it's just very fascinating to go deeper. I especially enjoy staying in a place for a week or two to get to know it even better. Like I'm almost almost trying to become kind of a a local Mm -hmm. and to get a knowledge by walking around with my camera. So for me, it was very accessible. I love the street. I love being out. And I have a natural interest. I'm very curious. I tend to go to places where you should be maybe a bit careful or sometimes not go. So this kind of drives me. I want to go deeper and deeper into different cultures and understand them. Yeah, your travels took you to places that are not commonly thought of when it comes to street photography. You know, people think street photography and they think, oh, New York or Paris or London. But you were exploring areas that I see less commonly referred to uh, when it comes to this genre of photography. And I'm wondering how that experience ha- has been or was different to what you know you may sort of experience now when you travel in you know in, in, in the US or in cities like London or Paris well it's I mean the first thing you always do when you touch down is kind of you you, you test the boundaries like you, you figure out uh, how far can I go and when do people kind of give you like push push back to you when you're around with your camera 
And uh, I figured that, you know, these cities are not necessarily so much different than New York or Paris. It's more about understanding like uh, little local tricks or if you smile and how you approach people and that kind of stuff. But for example, if you go to Bucharest, it's just a whole nother setting. It's a whole different world. I kind of teamed up with the, with the Bulb Collective while I spend a lot of time in the East. They have a, a strong mission of documenting those urban areas. And what's interesting in the East is a lot of times you feel the leftovers of this kind of post-communism, mm-hmm. not only visual, but also in the attitude. So it's, it's a whole nother field. But then in the, in the execution of street photography, not so much is different, but the people you meet are different. The stories are different. And the attitude is, is, is a little bit different in general. Yeah, I, 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 and maybe you can clarify this for me, but in the cities that I frequently photograph or find myself in, there is a real hyper awareness of the presence of the camera. Yeah. And even though there's an abundance of people out there with cameras, not just camera phones, but with cameras, the people see you, maybe they may not say or, or do anything, but there's an awareness of the presence of, of a photographer. And I sometimes think that when you go to a city or a town where that's less prevalent, that your ability to be quote-unquote invisible is decreased. Because seeing some fellow out there with a camera, even if it's a relatively small one, is sort of a rare thing, which makes it a little more difficult to be invisible or almost transparent as you're trying to make your photographs. Is, Is that your experience? Well, my personal experience is this for me is actually everywhere the same. Hmm. As as I said before, no matter if I go to the East or if I go to the New York, the the, the technical approach of of taking the image or like your personal strategy on how to get to the image usually remains the same. What is different is is the reactions and, and what happens out of it. For example, in New York, I mean, the culture is just so like straight out and direct. People tell you right away that they're not happy with what you're doing. And you kind of take that risk because you know it's only going to be like a verbal exchange. So you might even go a step further. And then when you go to other places, you might just be a bit more careful until you figure out if you can do that. But for me, in the action itself uh, of the execution of taking the picture, it's usually the same. Um, what might vary is the way you find the picture or how you kind of integrate yourself in those different environments. This varies. You have to get to know the local culture, but uh, taking the shot is is uh, is no different no matter where you go. For mm. me. I noticed in a lot of the pictures that you tend to uh, use a longer focal length than, I think it's like the 50, because you use the Fuji, so you're using the 56. Correct. Which is the equivalent of a, of a telephoto focal length. More commonly used just for portraiture and less so for street photography. But you nevertheless are always considering their environment. And I, I'm really curious to understand your your thinking in using that focal length and how you consider the space around which your subject is in, in making your photographs. It's a good point. And it's something that really, especially with the work I've done up to now, is, is, is really kind of the core thing. The 56 focal length uh, equivalent of about 80 millimeters on a full frame. The logic behind it is if, if I'm trying to make a personal portrait of you on the street, my first worry always is it has to stay candid. 
at no point do I want my subject to react to me in any way before I take the shot. And I find that if you want to get close, especially with shorter uh, lenses, you kind of get noticed faster and you also kind of get into the personal space of somebody so fast that they have to notice you. Now, mm-hmm. with the 80 millimeter focal length, if I take a full on portrait of you, I'm probably like one and a half meters away from you. So I'm, 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 I'm rather close to you, but I don't want to go so close that I influence you with my presence. And the other point you mentioned, that is one of my biggest challenges when I shoot, is the integration of the background, the light, and everything around it. As I come from like the drawing and the graffiti side, it really matters to me that something in the background in terms of lines or where somebody stands kind of frames the subject itself. So Mm -hmm. one thing is I don't want to influence you and the other thing is I'm just gonna I'm also able to position myself in a way that I can I have enough time to consider the background when I take the shot so when you discover a subject that you have in you have an interest in what what is sort of the workflow is it are you immediately trying to figure out okay where do I position myself so that I can create a background element or even a foreground element to play off of the subject is that the, the very next thing you do Yes. So what I'll do is I'll scan ahead. And uh, the moment I see somebody, I usually already have kind of an awareness of what's around it. Uh, I always look for light, uh, background, geometry, and then for the personal expression and the eye contact. So I'm, I'm not making it really easy for myself. So the moment I spot somebody, I almost kind of get into like uh, a non-verbal conversation with that person. I'm like, okay, I've seen you. Yes, you're there. I have to get over to that point. So I start moving. And then when you start moving again, we have to be careful because you cannot approach people like in a straight line. So the first thing is I do, I kind of walk in a curve to a position I assume is going to be the best one for the shot. And uh, when I get there, possibly the shot might not work. So at every step of the way, the shot is is 50% uh, will, will fail at least for 50%. Once I'm there, I'm trying to find the frame, I look at the background, I look at the light on on somebody's face, and then the other challenge comes in is like, does that person look, not at me, but do they look at my camera? Because that's usually the moment when I take the shot. So Mm -hmm. my logic is kind of scanning, then kind of assuming what's going to happen next, so to to heighten the chance of of the candid moment or of of the decisive moment, get into position, wait if I get the light, if I get the person, so it's a whole... A whole chain of things that can go wrong. And as you also know, as you shoot street in, in 80% of the cases, they actually do go wrong. But, you know, you just do it again and again and again. And once they have identified you and they've seen you, what's your, what's your reaction at that point after you've gotten the shot? When I got the shot, usually I'm, I'm just like kind of walking away. I mean, there's a whole other aspect to this, which is a lot of acting and psychology, not in a sneaky way, but... In, in a kind of a good way, like you're trying not to be dominant and, and these kind of things. So usually they don't point me out. And then I just uh, put my head down, put my camera away and, and, and walk away. And even in walking away, there's a certain psychology. Sometimes it works well to just walk towards the person and pass that person rather close, mm-hmm. which gives them the impression that this had nothing to do with them. And there's a lot of these little kind of tricks, but I rarely get into confrontations. 
I'm not trying to talk to people. I'm not interested in their deeper personal stories. I'm really just going for the story and the visual. Yeah, I mean, there's so many different ways to sort of respond and react to them, and I don't, I don't have a singular uh, technique that I approach. It's, I just, you know, do as I it feels right. Sometimes I, I do like you, and I'm just like, just keep moving. And there are other times I just may like nod my head, or I'll say thank you, or you know, it, it's. I just basically improvise as as the moment calls for, and and most times it's never a big deal. I've had more people whose photograph I wasn't taking complain about what I was doing than the people that I photograph. That's been more common than any direct confrontation than with someone that I've made a photograph of. Absolutely, that's that's one side. And what also happens to me way more is people actually bystanders pointing out that you're taking a picture of somebody mm-hmm. like they're trying to they're trying to care about the person you're trying to take a picture of but then um, i mean when it comes to confrontation i have a certain logic on 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 how i approach this um i believe that even though we're trying to do good for people by doing street photography i mean from an ethical point of view we're always shooting for and not against the people. So the moment they actually come, I think we have an obligation to explain them what we are doing in the most friendly, open way and to very quickly eliminate the, the fear that, that we are creeps. Because mm-hmm. a lot of people don't understand the difference between observing and documenting. And while observing is an act of observation, documentation to me is, 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 is an act of, of uh, interest, or if we want to say it more, more emotionally, it is an act of love. Yeah. Like I find you interesting. I want to give you, a, a, in the best case, although in 99% of all cases, that's not going to happen. But if the shot is really good, let me give you a little bit of eternity through trying to make an iconic picture of you. So it's a really positive act towards the people. One of the things I've been thinking about recently, and I've actually written uh, a good amount about this, is this idea of transitions, about as a photographer, you're constantly learning and adapting and improving, and that that evolution is not just about how you take pictures, but how you see. Mm -hmm. And I thought that I, I would riff this with you, because I think that from what I know of you and what I've seen about your work, that you've you've been aware of that in your in your own work because I know you're self-taught uh, okay. and that you drew a lot of inspiration from other photographers and other artists who you know practice other mediums. And I wanted to talk to you about the awareness of not just the pictures that you're making, but your process. And by that I mean it's hard to define process. It's not just the it's not just the mechanics, but it's it's the way you think about what you see and how you're seeing it. Does that make sense? Yes. I, I think you're referring to like how do we, when we go out with our camera, how do we perceive things and how what's our reflection process in yeah. the back of our minds? Are you referring to that? Let me, let me give you a, an example. I was, yeah. um, I actually did a YouTube video on this uh, this past week. And then I heard Stephen Shore, a real famous uh, photographer um, who was speaking here in Pasadena recently. And he talked about this idea of there was a phase in his his photographic life when he would photograph something and the intentionality of it was really evident in the photograph in terms of how he controlled the frame, how he used line and shape. And, and you could look at the photograph and just because of its preciseness, you were aware of 
the photographer in the choices that they made. And then that yeah. at some point, he moved to trying to create pictures where that was less evident, where the photograph almost seemed like a snapshot, but the choices were still there, but it was less obvious. And, of the, and that kind of transition is just one example of that idea of being conscious of how you're seeing and shooting and then making a purposeful, different choice to sort of take your work in a slightly different direction. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm with you on that. But I, I almost understand it as I feel I'm currently exactly in such a moment. Mm-hmm. It almost, it's almost like you're learning something and then you can, you can repeat it and repeat it again. And it becomes like kind of boring to yourself. Right. And it's, it's, it's probably even also a very personal decision because that's the moment where you either kind of ride that wave and you continue reproducing what you've done and people like, or you purposefully throw yourself back into insecurity and kind of also failing again. And I, I, I embraced that, and I did that at every step in my life when something got too comfortable or too easy to purposely break it and kind of shake it up and find different methods. And I feel I'm currently in the middle of that. I've been shooting for three, four years now. And I've just been shooting this afternoon uh, here in Zurich. And while I was walking down the street, I was thinking I could take so many shots and they would work. But they're not new. They don't excite me anymore. So how do I go about that? Like, how do I change up my method? So I'm trying to, to change my method, maybe become more, because I'm very reflected in how I shoot, maybe to become more kind of in, intuition-based instead of logic-based in, mm. in my way of shooting. And on the other hand, I'm, I'm, I'm going into a documentary and NGO work where that skill of actually reflecting about it and trying to pull down an, an, an intended, to get an intended story or follow a narrative is extremely important. So I'm trying to make my street photography more spontaneous and my other side of my work more uh, purposeful. So... Yeah, I mean, we need to change up sometimes. If we do the same for over and over again, we are not challenging ourselves. I believe we should always challenge ourselves. Yeah, and then the idea of doing stuff outside of our genre is really important. Because I know, like you, when I'm doing work for nonprofits or NGOs, that the intent of the images is different than what the, than the photographs that I'm creating for myself. But I still apply everything that I learned on the street to creating those images. And as a result, the images are still rooted in whatever sensibility I've created, but I'm having to apply them in a different way. And the demands on me in terms of the kinds of photographs and the content of the photographs has shifted because there's a, there's a purpose beyond simply creating uh, a photograph that is aesthetically pleasing and satisfy, satisfies me creatively. Mm-hmm. And it seems like that's what you're experiencing as you're doing work for NGOs and in nonprofits as well. Yes, and I think it's important. I've, I've always believed that, that photography needs a purpose. Now, street photography has a purpose in general, and I strongly believe in the purpose of street photography. But then I think we can do good things uh, with our cameras. And that's a totally different approach. I'm shooting also a, a documentary here in Zurich in an area that is about to disappear, which is a little bit around uh, the red light and the more rough areas of, of town. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I believe that, you know, 
we need to meet, do meaningful things with our cameras. And then telling a story becomes a whole different undertaking. When I go on the street, the only thing I'm responsible for is my ethics and my personal philosophy. And when I get into people's lives or I'm like getting the trust to be close to them and they let me in on certain things, I'm responsible towards them. And that's a whole nother reflection process. Do I do justice to the subject? Am I rep representing them right? Is there a message that I should consider that is important to the story? So that's way more uh, reflected and, and logic uh, at that point. As we begin our 13th season, I'm constantly reminded about how far we've come. When I started this show, I barely understood what a podcast was, much less how to produce one. But along with that germ of an idea was the belief that if I did the work, it would be successful. I never defined what that success would look like all those many years ago, but now I do. The success that this show has enjoyed isn't measured in dollars and cents or fame. Instead, it's measured by the way this show has helped inspire and change the lives of the many people who listen to the show. Over the years, I've heard so many stories of listeners who rediscovered their passion for photography or were inspired to push forward during a difficult time or, or just discovered that there were other people out there who not only loved photography but who also wanted to make it a bigger part of their lives. It's been those people from all over the world who have made this show invaluable, not only to me, but to everyone who has ever listened to the show. So as we march on into a new season and toward our 500th episode, I hope that you will help us to continue to make The Candid Frame an invaluable resource, not only for yourself, but for countless others. You can do this by helping us to reach our goal of 100 new Patreon supporters by committing to a recurring donation of $5 or more a month. We are getting ever closer to that goal, and your contribution will be an essential part of making the 2019 season one of the best. Uh, are you jacked into the uh, community of photographers in, in Zurich, or are the relationships mostly exist with people all over the place online? 50-50. Uh, there is a, a local street photography scene that I highly appreciate, but I don't mind so much about location. I mind a lot about uh, sincerity. Uh, towards the, the the genre or the subject, so that's always kind of my my uh, that always defines my level of of, of sympathy towards uh, towards a photographer, and and people are all over the place. There's a few photographers in Switzerland that I highly admire. Uh, some just left us uh, a year or two ago, like uh, Rene Bodi. Mm. who did amazing yeah. work. I'm just drawn to people who are serious about what they do. Um, I'm drawn to brave people. I'm drawn to people who are willing to take risks to to come back with, with amazing pictures or to, to speak for something. So to answer this in short, uh, I think it's it's all over the planet. There's a certain core in New York 
that I gravitate to, but uh, there's equally as much uh, photographers I admire in the east of Europe or in, in, in Central Europe. Is Do you see any sort of, or what differences do you, do you see with respect to people who are outside of the, you know, the classic locations of street photography in terms of how the culture itself, the community itself helps to reshape how uh, a common practice, in this case photography, is sort of adopted and made its own by people in, you know, in different communities. Do you see any anything that makes the community, not only in Zurich, but Zurich, but maybe the immediate vicinity, very distinctive as opposed to somewhere else? Yeah, yeah, I do, and, and and I have to be careful about this because it also means I'm 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 kind of judging people to a degree. I can I can put this in a positive form. I was highly impressed, for example, by the photo community in Bucharest, just because it's different. Uh, I, I met the people; they have a most of them kind of studied art to some degree or like visual design. So the the, the love for for the visual is is a different one than maybe just doing street photography for for leisure time. Mm-hmm. And, and that attracts me a lot. I see a lot of sincerity in, in people from the NYC SBC that I hang a lot in New York. They're really serious about, about the street photography. So they come in different uh, flavors, different cultural backgrounds, but it's always the, the love for, for what they do that, that, it, that impresses me. But yes, th- there's differences. I feel in New York, you're very conscious that you're in New York. You're at the birthplace of, of, of street photography and, and people have, have this kind of feeling. While in other places, they have to create their own identity. Distinctively in, in Bucharest, I was so impressed by the pictures of, of this uh, collective. And I said, man, the guy who runs the collective, uh, Mikhail, I, I told him, man, I have so many friends in New York who love to shoot like that. And his answer highly impressed me because then he went and he was like, well, then tell him to come here because that's how we do mm-hmm. things over here, you know. <laughs> so, and this is the moment where I'm like, okay, I feel like you, you, you can stand for your own, so I'm, I'm attracted to that. Yeah, it's fascinating when I look at the images that people submit to our candid frame flicker pool, which is from everywhere, from not only Europe and the United States, but from South America and Southeast Asia. And I, I, you know, I just, I'm amazed by not just the quality of the work, but sometimes sort of the distinctive voice that I see coming from these places that is not just reflective of where they are. You know, it's easy to think that, oh, these pictures are interesting just because they seem exotic to my to my eye. No, there's something else that's also happening there with how people are seeing and relating to the people and the space that they're photographing, which is fascinating because I remember when I first started to look at the work of Japanese photographers, it took me a while to really understand why these photographs, which were considered to be, you know, the better photographs coming out of that country, why I was having difficulty getting it. Because there were different aesthetic considerations that were being made with those photographers that I had not yet sort of gotten in tune with. It's kind of like how I experienced the work of Lee Friedlander, right? I looked at that and I was just like, I don't understand why this is supposed to work, right? And I just hadn't, you know, gotten to the space where I could get it. And do you you experience something along the same lines when you're looking at other people's work, whether it's from another region, whether it's a generational thing? Always. I mean, I have, I'm sitting like next to close to like a hundred photo books 
And uh, depending on where they come from, I'm always highly impressed with that. It actually sparks my interest because, as you said, like the, the first impression is like, uh, what is this exactly? And then you dig into it and you start understanding it. And you kind of like look up different people who do the same thing. And all of a sudden, there's a whole culture of something that you've not been aware of, an approach of something that you've not been aware of. And it's just like so great because you can always learn from mm. these kind of things. And no matter how, what also I find interesting is no matter how uh, different it might look in the beginning, I think you can always feel the, the sincerity behind the work, even if it's maybe strange at first look, but you can feel there's a reflection behind it. This is purposeful and that actually makes you kind of want to dig into it. Uh, what's distinctive about your work, in the, especially the work that's on your site, is that you have a, a distinctive um, black and white look to your photographs. Mm -hmm. And have you had any concern that you can get locked into a particular look, especially when it comes to post-processing? Because it can be just as much of, of a trap as is shooting a specific way, as we talked about earlier, where you're just sort of repeating yourself. How, how much is a consideration of those factors play in terms of how you choose to process your images? Well, when I started, one of the first things I wanted to achieve is that, that images have kind of a similar look to themselves. I wanted to, like, when you look at it, to see that those come from the same series. And coming from drawing... I have a, I'm very conscious about, you know, gray scales and how, what's the deepest black point and the mm -hmm. lightest white point and these kind of things. So I, I was purposefully working on kind of getting them all into the same look, but now doing this for three, four years, I'm actually want to finish my, my personal ambition. I want to get together a hundred pictures of kind of the same quality level and the same look and make it a body of work that I can also leave behind at some point if I like to. And to be honest with you, I'm just uh, I'm just editing all my work from the last year, and more often I find myself drawn to making those pictures uh, in color. So ah. something's happening in the back of my head. I'm thinking about should I? I'm quite. I'm already committed to like probably doing my documentary work in the future in color. And more and more street shots, I'm like. Mm they would look good in color. So there's a lot of things happening in the back of my head. That's fascinating. That's a good place. That's a good place to be. Yeah, because I also don't want to drive myself in, into, into that corner. I, I think I have an awareness because I spent 10 years in the music business, which from, from, uh, from the mechanisms in the background or also the creative, like the perception of the creative delivery in the music business is similar to the one in, in the photographic industry. I tend to believe, as far as I've seen up to now, I think variation is important and, and not driving yourself into a corner and keep options open. And I mean, once somebody puts a tag on you, mm -hmm. you should really think if you want to keep that tag or maybe want to get rid of it. So I'm, I'm with you on that thought that I'm, I'm also trying to break that up uh, on my side. Yeah. Like the, the continuity. Well, you, you do the Fuji Love podcast, so that provides you access to a lot of different photographers, just like I yep. do on, on this show. And... In having a chance to engage other people about not just the use of one particular make of camera, but just discussing things like we are now, how much, if any, has that influenced the way that you see and make photographs? Well, I, I don't think it has influenced my, uh, my photography or my projects directly, but what I figured is we're all the same. So no matter if, if I shoot 
what fascinates me about it is that everybody that is like doing things that are heartfelt and that, that drives them forward, no matter what genre they're in or what kind of subjects they shoot, the reflection process is a lot of times the same. Like you want to do justice to a subject, you really commit to something and follow it up. And this kind of confirmed me in my, my personal attitude towards that. Like, you know, you find something, you, uh, quote, quote, bite into it and, and then you, you do that and, and you do it. What also impresses me is for years. So the more I talk to photographers that I admire and that do amazing work, there's no instant, uh, reward and recognition in photography. There's no uh, fast riches in photography, if there's any at all. So most people really doing stuff for five or 10 years, they do it because they're passionate. Mm -hmm. And that impresses me. And with them, I can identify and it confirms me in my approach. That's a good philosophy to have. Yep. I'm more often impressed with people than I'm, I mean, I'm really people who, and they're so different. They're so different, but that's the core that kind of unites them all. I mean, you can take a lifestyle photographer, a street photographer, a documentary photographer, and a landscape photographer. And if we really drill down to the core of what drives them, mm -hmm. the stories are going to be very similar. Yeah, I think uh, discovering what that is sometimes is really a, a, a fun part of the journey of having these conversations. Because right? when you talk to people whose work is so distinctly distinctly different from what you create and yet you're able to tap into that that commonality that drives you yeah. not just in terms of making photographs but something more more personal yeah. it really just goes to show that how more the same we are than we are different and it's for me it's 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 heartening to realize that especially when I interview someone whose work I greatly admire who's had an amazing career that somehow I'm connected to that same energy, that same sensibility, that same thing that makes us each want to do something with a camera. And I think it's really yeah. kind of cool and humbling and awesome at the same time. You know what I believe what it is? And, and that also extends beyond actually photography. I think it's creativity. Yeah. What unites us is creativity. And that, that's a distinction I make in the photo world between the technicians and the creatives, those who choose to use the medium to express themselves and those who are interested in the technicalities of the medium. And I think the common denominator there that you mentioned for me absolutely is, is, is also for me the asset of the future is creativity. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it, I love the way you make the distinction. Because the, uh, especially the last couple of months, all the dialogue about the new cameras and all these people, basically these factions of people who want to say thumbs up, thumbs down, this sucks, this is great, yeah, all that other stuff, I have no patience for at all. And it's more about, okay, yeah, you can have those conversations. I really want to see the pictures. Exactly. I really want to see what people are creating with with. With this new Nikon, this new Sony, this new Fuji, this new Panasonic, yeah, yeah, that's all great. But what what are going to pe what are people doing with it? That for me is always a much more interesting conversation to have than you know whether it has two or one card slot. Right. And I usually tell, I mean, when those conversations come up, I usually ask like, can you tell me the sharpest picture of the last century? 
and then silence uh, appears and I say, see, that's why, because nobody cares who's the sharpest picture. But, you know, you can tell me probably what's the picture that emotionally impacted you the most. And I'm sure it's technically not perfect. Oh, yeah. And, and also, I mean, when have you seen, and it's specific to photography, which kind of surprised me, because when have you seen the last time two painters sit down at, at the Louvre and say, well, in this painting on the upper left corner, if he would have used a, a different pencil, the red would look so much better. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, what, what brush did you use or what typewriter exactly. did you use? You know, I'm just to some degree, there are always people who are always going to be fixated to some extent on the technical because it's, it's the easier of the conversations to have, right? True. And if I may link back to your question earlier before, it's the choice that never forces you to, to question your own security. Like you don't have to break your pattern if you're on the technical side. This is going to feed you for your whole lifetime. You're always going to have new sensors and new lenses. But if you're on the creative side, as we just discussed, every three, four years, you might get into some personal struggle because you change your methods. That is an excellent point. Yeah, because you, you, the former guarantees you a certain sense of security, especially when it's mirrored by other people, right? People saying, this is the best lens, this is the best technique, blah, blah, blah. But when you get into creativity and you make those different choices, you are in for a level of discomfort and challenge that is not easily or commonly shared with anyone else. It's, yes. it's those moments where you really are alone in your own process. And that it's not going to be remedied by any casual conversation that you're going to have on some forum online, which is... You know, why it's so difficult, but also why it can be the most fulfilling. Absolutely. But you have to willing to take the pain. If, if, you, if you don't take the pain, you're not going to have the fun. And my personal experience is with creativity, the pain, I mean, if, if you really push yourself to be creative, the pain never goes away. It's an oh. integral part of the process. Yeah. I was listening to a, a podcast with, um, she's on, she's the lead actress on a show called Blackish. And she's the daughter of Diana Ross. And I forget her first, first name. But she was being interviewed on Larry Wilmore's show, Black on the Air. And she talked about that when it comes to her work, whether it's on film, on stage, or, in, or on TV, she's always scared. But the difference is she's gotten used to being scared. She's yes. gotten accustomed to it. So it's not something to avoid. Rather, it's just something that she's accepted is just part of her process. And that she just acknowledged. You on that. Excuse me for interrupting, but I wouldn't even say it's just accepted. It's, it's, it's a, a necessity. Hmm. It's you, you, if you avoid that phase, nothing is going to happen. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's almost like, you know, fair because, I mean... The same thing is, I mean, let me put it differently. I mean, today I believe um, also in the most respectful way possible, people often replicate themselves, especially if we like kind of uh, look over to social media, Instagram and these kind of things. Yeah. There's a method to getting liked. Uh, just that the method to getting liked is, is there's no, no, no friction. There is nothing new. You just basically repeat to get love. And I think that when you like trying to create something you new, you cannot avoid going into the unknown and, and quote, quote, the dark. And this is where all those doubts, the reflections, the insecurity happens. And that's where most of, for me personally, the good things come from. 
I've always became accustomed to this kind of roller coaster. So I'm, I, I know it's going down, you know, maybe having a photographer's block or just a bad month or something like this. Mm-hmm. But I've learned that by going down, I have to take that momentum to swing up the other way. And the more I embrace it, the more it's going to swing me up the other way. But if I avoid it, I'll never pick up that kind of momentum. Yeah, because it's when I see those Instagram Instagrammers who are very popular and they have a consistent style and look to their images. And I've seen people say that, oh, if you want to get Instagram followers, that that's something that you sort of need to do. You need to be consistent in sort of the, the vision that you put into those photographs. But I can't help but think that yeah, but you're locking yourself in. That as soon as you want to change up, you know, you're going to have to deal with the fact that a bunch of your followers are going to be like, yeah, but that's not what you, you did before. It's kind of like a, a band or a singer. And they released a, uh, an album that was received a great acclaim. And the second album comes out and going, yeah, but it's not like your first one. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's a classic. <laughs> well, I think, I mean, you have to be, you have to see, you can, I believe, and that's also my philosophy on, on, on social media is you have to bring something from outside of social media that you want to communicate and you find the people that actually want to see that. If you, mm, yeah. if you're just making those on social media for fame is what you do is, as you just mentioned, you create your own echo chamber. The moment you change the tone, the whole thing breaks down. So there's no, there's no sustainability in, 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 in Instagram fame. And plus we're moving, and it's my personal philosophy, we're moving in, in the world of photography. If I look over to my le- left, I see a whole lot of names in my, in my bookshelf that they never had Instagram. And, and, but they created something outstanding within a genre or within a discipline. And that gives them longevity. Hmm. I mean, I cannot remember who was famous on Instagram two years ago, but I know the 10 best photo books of the 1960s. So what should I aim for? (laughs) Amen, brother. Well, my last question, which I ask each guest, is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Well... I'm sorry, to, I have to name two names, but the second one is going to be the one that I recommended. My first choice would be due to being one of my best personal inspirations when I started, but he was already on your podcast and people know him as Rain Zero is. Mm-hmm. Highly admired that guy, was a guiding light in my first years of photography. But then what I would really recommend you to check out is somebody I recently talked to on the Fujilove podcast, which is a Danish photographer by the name of Klaus Bo. And he has an incredibly fascinating project, uh, which is called the Dead and Alive Project. And he's photographing this for 13 years where he goes into um, death rituals and, and um, uh, the passing of people and documents that in different cultures. And he gets very close to that. And I'm highly impressed by his work because he sold his car. Uh, invested his own money, followed this subject for 13 years. His work is great. And for me, he's a, a great example of somebody who dedicates a large part of their life to a, to a photo- photographic work. Oh, great. I, I'm not caught up on my episodes with you guys, so I definitely want to hear that one. That's that like a great recommendation. So can't blame you for that. <laughs> All right, Jens. Thank you so much, man. It was a pleasure to finally sit down and and talk with you properly. So thank you. It was an honor to be a guest on that show. It's uh, 
The Candid Frame is my favorite photography podcast since day one when I started with photography. So you take the same place in, in my heart as Rinzi does in that regard. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks to Jens for coming on the show. You can find out more about Jens and his work by visiting jenskrauer.com. And whether or not you shoot Fuji, you should definitely check out the Fuji Love podcast. And as some of you may or may not know, I also have a YouTube channel where I discuss different aspects of photography from lighting, composition, and a whole lot more. I do this with the help of images that listeners submit to the Candid Frame Flickr pool. You can check out the TCF Flickr pool and our YouTube channel by clicking on the link in the show notes and the website. And my new book, Making Photographs, Developing a Personal Visual Workflow, is now available. If you feel stuck or struggling with making good photographs on a consistent basis, this book is for you. I believe that it can and will help you to learn a new personal way of seeing. You can order the book today. When you place your order from the Rocky Nook website, use the promo code PORELLO40 to receive 40% off the list price. Check out the website and the show notes for the link. And if you want to keep up with all things Candid Frame, sign up for our mailing list and you'll receive three free copies of my previously published ebooks. And if you like what you're hearing on the show, please take the time today to write a review in the iTunes store as it helps our ranking and creates greater awareness. Thanks to Photo 2013 and Taylor Allen for their five-star reviews. You can also support the show by making a monthly contribution through Patreon, or you can make a one-time contribution via PayPal. You'll find the links for both in the show notes and the website. Thanks to Vanja Koso, Charles Hagedorn, Rajesh Singh, Martin Benfeld, Daniel Farrell, Balaz Fayez, and Neil Holmes. You guys are so awesome. Thank you. And if you want to easily access every episode of The Candid Frame, download the Candid Frame app. It's available for both Apple iOS and Android, and it's free. Download it today. You'll find it where everything else is in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor. You can find at the other martintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker. And our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at simply at IbadianX. And this is IbadianX, and this is The Candid Frame.